we'll be talking about Exodus, but not in the same way we talked about Exodus in the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're taking a little bit of a detour from Exodus and looking at Israel's relationship uh, with a few centuries afterwards, uh, after this key moment in history. And, you know, it all starts with graduation. So we had a blessing for the children. Now let's have a blessing for the graduates. Who here has graduated from junior high, from high school, or any program, be it undergraduate, certificate, uh, graduate school, whatever it might be? If you have, stand up. Stand up and be counted. Recently. Well, (laughs) within the last three months. Yes, they are here, yes. Wonderful. Four members of our family. So, as we did before with the kids, if you are near one of these graduates, place your hands upon them. That works. Place your hands upon each other. That works just fine. And pray with me, please. Lord God, we thank you for these people gathered with us, and we thank you for the knowledge, the wisdom, the perseverance, and the character they have gained and developed during their time of study. As they embark on their next chapter in their lives, we pray that the same hand that has kept them thus far will continue to be in their lives. May your hand of protection be about them, and may your word continue to be a light onto their path. Help them to make wise decisions and to always keep you first in everything that they do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Congratulations, folks. Now, some of you might be moving on to the next level, academia. And uh, with that always comes aptitude testing. A standard feature of any SAT exam has been analogies. So let's do a little bit of a refresher, shall we? All right. So if you remember, an analogy is a similarity between like features of two things on which the comparison may be based. For example, in is to out as up is to... Correct. And green is to go as red is to... You guys got this down. All right, let's give it a shot. Shout out the answers as you got them. Foot is to sock as hand is to... Nicely done. Land is to dirt as ocean is to... Wow, you guys are geniuses. Shadows is to mimicry as forms is to... Mimicry! <laughs> Plato! Guys, anybody remember? Reality, okay, fine. It's a whole allegory of the cave. We'll talk about that later. Okay, four is to square as eight is to... Octagon, that's right. And finally, San Francisco is the Giants as Los Angeles is to... <laughs> San Francisco is the Giants as Los Angeles is to hasn't won a World Series since Reagan was president. So, <laughs> I got him. With only a cursory glance at the Bible, it seems that God loves analogies and metaphorical language as well. They appear constantly throughout the Bible. And do you know why? A lot of the time, we just don't get it. We need to relate to something familiar so that we can understand something unfamiliar. For example, when the prophet Nathan was speaking to King David about his sins regarding a woman named Bathsheba, he realized that he needed to use an analogy. And the one that he used is Bathsheba is to David as a lamb is to a thief. And that helped David understand what Nathan was trying to say to him. 
We also have, famous one, shepherds the sheep as Jesus is to his followers, us. Yes, basically, people. Thank you. And, last but not least, a mustard seed is like the kingdom of God because there's a whole string of them, right? But basically the big one is it starts small, but it grows powerfully and uncontrollably. And this is something that we in the church sometimes have problems with. God doesn't grow the kingdom the way we think he should. And this box that we create for him, God is just too big for it. So we have issues with this. But analogies can help us to understand what God is really trying to do. So the analogy that we'll be focusing on today is this. God is to Israel as... Well, there's a bunch of them. It's from the book of Hosea. It's a beautiful analogy that I'm going to talk about describing God's relationship with Israel and with us. But we have to get there first. So we start with Exodus. About 1300 BCE was uh, 3,300 years ago. And shortly after leaving Egypt behind, the Israelites were following God through the wilderness and arriving at the base of Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. In a few weeks with Pastor Danielle and Pastor Kevin, we'll be talking more about what happened here. But for the purpose of today, I just want to talk about one specific analogy. At the base of this mountain, God and Israel made a covenant together based on love and faithfulness. It is here where we find this analogy for identity. God is to Israel as a bride is to a groom, or a groom is to a bride. Has anyone ever attended a Jewish wedding ceremony? We got a couple of hands. So you guys have probably seen this then. There's a canopy over the head of the bride and the groom, and it's called a chuppah. That chuppah is where the bride and the groom commit themselves to love and to faithfulness, to love one another, to be faithful to one another. Well, guess what? When Israel was at the base of Sinai, committing themselves to a life of love and faithfulness to God, there was a cloud above them. The commands, the ordinances, the words that God and Israel spoke to one another then, it served as a marriage contract. It was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. When Moses went up on that mountain, the cloud covered it, just like a hoopah. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. So there, right there, is a clear symbol that of God, what God wanted to display. God in Israel is like Israel. God is to Israel as a bride, as a groom is to a bride. And there was another uh, analogy that came up as well, which is, God is to Israel as your God is to my people. A little bit later on in Leviticus, God says to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. This describes the identity, the relationship that we'll be having from that point forward. But we need to jump ahead a few hundred years, about 300 years, because sometimes in order to understand a marriage, we can't just look at the honeymoon because everything is shiny and new, but we need to see what happens when couples begin to change and when life circumstances get a little difficult. So let's jump ahead about 300 years. Over time in a relationship, one can start to take the other person for granted. The other person began as someone who is the object of your love and your affection. And then they turn just another part of their lives. I drive my identity from that relationship with that person, but that person really isn't that important to me. God called Israel to be different, but Israel looked past him and wanted to be like all the other nations. God remains, God gave them an identity, his people, but their actual relationship with him was just lip service. 
Instead, Israel adopted the customs and the faiths of all the surrounding nations. Israel had become the nation that God promised to Abraham, but not the nation that God wishes them to be. God had called them to be different so that the nations would see God's justice in them and respond to them. Starting with leadership. Kings were once chosen by God himself. Now Israel's kings took power through violence and rebellion. And God noticed. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but not without my knowledge. God continued to bless them, and Israel became a regional power. Through military conquests, they had secured territory and political influence. And an economic boom in rich natural resources. Have you ever been to Israel? Israel isn't a desert. It is filled with agricultural gifts, great land. It is a cornucopia of resources. But with these resources, they were able to establish uh, an economic structure that led to the development of a wealthy merchant class. Israel started to believe that they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They relied on themselves and their own political machinations to sustain the country. But like so many of us have seen and even experienced, when you get to the top, sometimes your focus becomes staying at the top, no matter what it takes. And God noticed. By around 750 BCE, Israel was now divided up into two small kingdoms. Israel in the north, which is also called Ephraim, and Judah down in the south. These two separate kingdoms were among many different states, all living in the shadow of two great empires, jostling for power. And that was Assyria in the north and Egypt to the south. In order to maintain their wealth and prestige in this contentious environment, Israel didn't turn to God, who had given them everything they had and everything they cherished. Instead, they turned to the empires around them. And God noticed. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now calling to Assyria. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. In order to keep these neighbors appeased and to continue their own prosperity, Israel and Judah negotiated deals and paid off the two empires. Israel sending gifts to Assyria to stay on their good side. And eventually, Israel was an independent nation in name only. It was essentially just a province of the Assyrian Empire, and God noticed. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. They have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Rather than trusting the God who led them at the beginning, who guided them towards nationhood in the first place, Israel tried to figure out its own way, and the unfaithfulness to God became apparent. Not only in the political alliances that they held, but also in the rejection of God's love for justice and compassion among the poor and marginalized. What happened to, I will be your God and you will be my people? It went from their identity to something they just played lip service to. And God noticed. I have been your God ever since you came out of Egypt, 300 years ago. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Israel became focused on the blessings rather than the origin of the blessings. Israel had been a nation under God for so long and it was so prosperous that no one believed the ride would ever end. 
or that God would ever lead them to their own devices. People figured that it was just enough to go through the motions. Yeah, 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 I said I love you. Yeah, 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 Here, here's, here's this gift for our anniversary. Oh, yeah, yeah, I cleaned out the dishwasher. Where's my dinner? Yeah, 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 sure, you're my God, we're your people. Yeah, we talked, okay, you're, you're happy now? God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call Israel to stop taking him for granted. They served as letters. These prophets served as letters, saying that the relationship was headed down the wrong path. But Israel just didn't get the message. It wasn't that God was going to divorce Israel. It was that Israel had walked out on him. It had done everything short of tearing up the marriage contract. In fact, for a time, Israel had lost the contract. Sometime between the reign of King Solomon and King Josiah, they actually lost the first five books of the, New, of, of the Old Testament, of the Bible. And they abandoned that quest for ju- justice and mercy that God called for in those books. They forgot the reasons why they celebrated these feast days and performed sacrifices, and they started worshiping other gods. They were just going through the motions in their relationship with God. It was just something they had to do. One of the final messages that God sent to the northern kingdom of Israel is in the person of Hosea. Hosea is sometimes referred to as the deathbed prophet because he states clearly that no change of heart will cause the northern kingdom to avoid its eventual fate. For Israel, it was over. You were my earth You didn't know all the ways I loved you No So you took a chance Made of a plan But I bet you didn't think that they would come crashing down No Now, I hope every time you hear Justin Timberlake, you think of the book of Hosea. Because it happens to me all the time. (laughs) And here's something that the people tend to forget about the biblical prophets. The prophets didn't just convey God's messages in word alone. Often their lives, their identities, even their very names reflected the message that God had given to them. It was no different for Hosea. His actual life served as an analogy. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, 
because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her, Lord, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should forgive them at all. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Ouch. Hosea and his wife were called to be a living metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Hosea married a woman who was unfaithful to him from the very beginning, and then he names their kids as reminders of how God will abandon Israel to its own devices. Now, we know that Hosea was being amazingly, astonishingly, and self-sacrificially faithful to God by obeying this command. Here's a man who personally knows the pain of abandonment and marginalization. Here's a man through who, through who, through his faithfulness, is experiencing God's pain. But if you were alive back then, seeing the supposed man of God marrying someone who, known for sleeping around, and then essentially naming their kids, I don't love this one, and this one isn't mine, what do you think about this so-called prophet? What sanely thinking person engages in this kind of behavior? Would you believe a word he had to say? A couple of chapters later, the plot thickens. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. Again, in hindsight, Hosea is a person of great strength and courage. But to those who are seeing him do this, this, this loser goes to the man sleeping with his wife, the man who has been keeping her as property, and he buys her from him. And then he says to his wife, stay faithful to me. If you see this man, supposedly called by God, and you see how he's married with children, he's married a woman who cheats on him repeatedly and who has abandoned him and their kids. And you see this crazy man going to the man she's been cheating with, giving him money to secure her freedom and telling her, don't leave me again. What would you say to him? Hosea, what in the world makes you think she can do that? What evidence has she given you that she's even capable of doing that? You know, this man isn't crazy. He's an idiot, and he's weak. He can't stand up for himself. And if he had one iota of self-respect, he'd send her bouncing down the street. What an embarrassment. He deserves to be mocked. His own wife mocks him by abandoning him again and again and again. And no matter what happens, he welcomes her back home. What kind of person is this? Wait. Is this what we take God for? Some sucker bending over backwards to make us happy, no matter how we treat him? 
Well, after decades of seeing the northern kingdom of Israel move further and further away from God, God won't be the cuckold any longer. God won't avoid the, Israel won't avoid the circumstances of their behavior. They will be conquered by Assyria. And they will be scattered to the wind. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Only the southern kingdom will remain. And when, within a 50, 150 years, it will be gone too. What happens to a wife who is unfaithful? By law, she was to be cursed. She was to be cursed to never have children. And she was to be sent away. In a sense, this is what God does to Israel. He allows Israel to be taken away by Assyria, and then his descendants are scattered. But this is not the sole image in the book of Hosea. The dominant analogy in Hosea is that of God as jilted lover and Israel as unfaithful spouse. But there are other analogies in Hosea, all intertwined, all connected by themes of love and faithfulness, and all building upon one another. There's another analogy in Hosea chapter 11, and reading it changed the way I saw God forever. It's probably my favorite passage in the Bible. And as God would have it, it starts with the book of Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. God's saying to them, like an infant, I birthed you. Like a calf, I raised you. And I showed you how to love me and each other. You relied on yourselves, though, and you left me. You took me for granted, and you made me look like a fool. You turned on me. You turned on each other, and because of this, you will reverse the exodus. You will return to bondage. As a child, I drew you out of Egypt, but as an adult, you have chosen to walk right back in. But this is not the end of the story. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim, these two cities that were destroyed completely with Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I treat you this way? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is around. I can't treat you this way. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God says, I can't give you up, for you are my people 
and I am your God. You might have forgotten that, but I never will. This God allows his children to suffer the consequences of their behavior, but he also shows mercy and restraint and hope. Not because his children have done something to deserve that mercy, but because of who he is and because of who they are. I will not let you be scattered to the winds. I will not let your suffering be in vain. I will give it purpose. I will never stop calling out to you. The exodus will not be reversed permanently. And when I roar, you will leave Egypt and Assyria, those places of exile and of bondage, and you will come home. The northern kingdom itself would not return, but it would live on in the descendants from Judah, who returned to the land a few centuries later to rebuild what they had lost. The reason I love this verse so much is because it shows the God who we are in relationship with. He's not a weak cuckold that allows us to walk all over him while he grins and bears it. He's not a vindictive, jilted lover that seeks to make the other suffer for hurting him. God is a heartbroken parent. God is someone who loves his children despite their rebellious nature. Someone who loves despite their abandonment of him. Someone who loves despite the personal abuse and the damaged reputations and the broken promises. In a few weeks, when we return to our journey through the book of Exodus... And when we hear God make that promise to Israel, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Remember this moment in Hosea, because this happened 300 years after the initial honeymoon. Remember that this promise to God was not just lip service. God kept his promise, not because Israel didn't break his heart, but because God loves. A documentary film came out last year. In fact, it's streaming on Netflix right now. And it follows the story of 18-year-old women, brand new high school graduates, and their desire to be free from their parents' control. One of these young women, Tressa, had a normal upbringing with two loving and supporting parents. And her Facebook page read, My love story is written by God. Tressa was the captain of her high school cheerleading squad, and she planned to go to a small college after graduation. But she felt stifled growing up in her small East Texas town. Though she loved them, She had no desire to follow in her parents' footsteps by getting her education, a simple job, a spouse, a house, children. She wanted to break out. And she chose to find her new found freedom and her adulthood and her emancipation from her family by being, being recruited online and entering the world of pornography. This documentary is absolutely heartbreaking. You hear Tressa talk about the freedom that she wants to live with, to do what she wants when she wants. You hear the hubris of her youth in her voice as she talks about her complete and total knowledge of the world and everything. I know how it works. And you hear her talk about her new job, job as a healthy expression of her adulthood. You hear her say how she will live life to the fullest and no one will stop her. You hear her talk about her parents as unsupportive. She says... This makes me happy. And if my parents love me, then they would support me in whatever makes me happy. But she doesn't tell them what she's doing in Miami. You hear words of wisdom pouring out of her as she shares with her cohorts that who are struggling with the toxic, enslaving, and demeaning nature of the adult film industry. Knowing that all the wisdom grew out of her own upbringing. And you see her utterly fail to apply it to herself. She was once faithful to those values of her upbringing, but now she merely plays lip service to them. 
A month after entering this business, Tressa visits her parents in Texas. Hers isn't a perfect family, but they seem to try. From the beginning of her stay, you watch Tressa evade her father and his questions, but then you watch Tressa's mother, who discovered what her daughter is doing, and small-town people talk. You see her mother point out the dangers and the toxicity to Tressa and to others. You hear her use the same wisdom that Tressa has been sharing with her cohorts. You see her mother's tears, and you hear her mother say, just come back home. And you see Tressa's tears as well, because what her mother says is confirming what she knows to be true. But Tressa's pride and shame and fear is getting in the way. It won't let her admit that she was wrong, and it won't let her come back home until well after the damage has been done. Her mother, however, never stops telling her, you are our daughter, and we love you. Come back home. And though she is forever marked by her experience, eventually, Tressa does come back home. But many other girls continue to fall through the same trap. Jesus uses this parent and child analogy himself. A son filled with pride and believing he knew it all leaves his father behind. And when he has taken and wasted all that his father has given to him, he comes home filled with shame. He expects to be treated as unwanted, undesired, and undeserving. But he discovers that his father has been waiting for him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Jesus uses the same parent-child analogy 700 years after Hosea did, and it holds power. The story of Tressa and her parents holds power as well, and it's because God's love is reflected in those relationships. Through Christ, God makes the same promise to us. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And just like everyone else, we walk away from God, almost daily, thinking about how we know it all and that we're being held back, being that we should be able to be allowed to do whatever we want, to grab life by the tail, to live for the moment, to discover who we are by disconnecting ourselves from what grounds us. We may not be 18-year-olds anymore, but we fall for the same trap that so many around us do. However, God whispers, you are my son, you are my daughter. He roars quietly in the acts of love, that he shows each and every day. The prophet Hosea doesn't simply serve as a reflection of God's love for us. He serves as an example for us. Hosea asks us to experience the pain through God's perspective, to experience identity through a broken heart, and to respond. We are to be like Israel at its best, so that in our times of pain and disillusionment, we can remember who we are, and to whom we belong. Now, if you would pray with me, I'm going to say a couple of petitions, and I would like you to repeat, uh, after I complete each one, Lord, hear us. That we may see God's abundant goodness and presence reflected in the love that we celebrate today and in the beauty of nature, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear us. That we may be strengthened by the reminder that Because of love, God does not give up on us. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear us. 
that we may in turn bring that love to each other, to those around us, especially in moments of heartbreak and pain. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear us. And that we may remember to share with others that our self-worth is not found in what we say or what we do or what we have, but that it ultimately rests in who we are and whose we are. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear us. And now let us pray in the words that Christ gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.